Well, happy Easter, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I'm glad you're here. My name is Ray Kolbacher, in case you're a guest. I'm the senior pastor here, and I'm really glad that you've joined us this holiday weekend. Um, you know, Easter is uh, one of those times, obviously, when people uh, think a lot about Jesus, uh, which is good. Uh, but after some 2,000 years or so, the tendency, I think, of many is to change, uh, exchange that is the real Jesus for a more uh, contemporary version. And what I mean by that is, as Americans, uh, we have a way of viewing Jesus through the lens of 21st century Western culture. And that, that's problematic because it skews reality. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to recontextualize Jesus, um, reclaim him, uh, in a more accurate historic sense. And a big part of that involves understanding ancient Israel and first century Judaism. In his book, Simply Jesus, Christian theologian, New York Times bestselling author N.T. Wright says, we have to make a real effort to see things from a first century Jewish point of view if we're ever to understand what Jesus is truly about. And I completely agree. And so this evening, I'd like to explore the idea of Jesus as the Redeemer. And I say the Redeemer because in first century Palestine, as the nation of Israel struggled um, under Roman rule and Roman occupation, uh, the Jewish people were looking for, longing for, praying for the arrival of God's promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the divine deliverer who would come redeem the people and set them free. And this idea of messianic redemption is one of Judaism's defining characteristics. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew term for redemption means to rescue from trouble, uh, to pay off a debt, to release from bondage. In the New Testament, the Greek term means to liberate captives. It was a term rooted in slavery. Uh, and to redeem a slave required paying a very, very high price to buy their freedom. So all that to say is the people of first century Israel were waiting for the Redeemer to come and free them from oppression. And Jesus arrives on the historic scene claiming to be him. However, the redemption that Jesus was bringing, what, what he was offering, wasn't political or socioeconomic in nature. It was spiritual in nature. Jesus put it this way, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That is redemptive language. In fact, Jesus would go on to declare himself to be not only the Redeemer of Israel, but uh, all of humanity which at the time was a pretty controversial thing. It got him in trouble with the religious community. So here's my, here's my Ray case summary. The historic Jesus, the true Jesus, claimed to be the divine redeemer, come to pay uh, the price required to forgive humanity's sin and set free those held captive by it. Now, here's the deal. What was true in the first century remains true still today in the 21st century, namely that the very idea of redemption assumes we need it. Redemption assumes our need for forgiveness and freedom, right? Keep in mind, when Jesus talked to people about things like sin and, and being slaves to sin, uh, his first century Jewish listeners understood the concept because uh, from the very beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, from uh, the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, to the prophets, to the poetry, to the historical texts, they all contemplate the meaning of life, uh, the nature of humanity, the reality of sin, the possibility of forgiveness. As creator, God uh, revealed to his people what is the right, true, good, and healthy way to live as human beings. And we have a choice to either humbly recognize that God as creator knows what's best for us and live accordingly, or in arrogance, rebel. Do our own thing, our own selfish way. 
which is ultimately what sin is about, right? Sin is not just about uh, acts of disobedience. The problem of sin runs much deeper than that. It's an attitude issue. It's a, it's a heart issue. And the first century Israelites understood that. They acknowledged the problem of sin and their need of forgiveness, and that's what the whole sacrificial system was about. But in our culture today, let's face it, you know, the word sin makes some people uncomfortable. Perhaps because we like to think of ourselves as modern, rational men and women who have no need for such archaic concepts. And yet, we all know there is something radically wrong with humanity. Every day we see it. Every day we witness and experience the tragic brokenness of our world. There's no missing it. You know, what is the problem? What's our major malfunction? David Foster Wallace was a Pulitzer Prize-winning American novelist, considered uh, as one of the most influential in the past 20 years. And, and Wallace wasn't a particularly religious guy. But once when giving a commencement speech to a class of college graduates, he shared some very insightful observations about human nature, asserting that our basic problem as human beings is self-centeredness. Uh, he explained it this way. He said, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realist, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it is so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it, he said. There's, there's no experience you've had that you're not the absolute center of. You know, the world as you experience it, as you see it, is there right in front of you or behind you or to the left of you or to the right of you. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so, so immediate, so urgent, and so real. Well, for me, that is a spot-on assessment of the human experience and of human nature. You know, whether he realized it or not, Foster Wallace was affirming how, without exception, we human beings are sinfully self-centered, you know, from the moment of birth, operating as if the universe revolves around us individually. And it leads to so many evil and ugly things, pride, greed, hate, dishonesty, prejudice, violence, and a whole list of other sinfully corrosive attitudes and behaviors. And listen, religious and irreligious people alike recognize that we have a problem in this world. For more than a century now, modern secular philosophers and sociologists and politicians have all acknowledged it that the world is a pretty messed up place. And they've, they've been consistently suggesting that we can fix it ourselves. We can fix it all ourselves if we just work hard enough with more money, better programming, higher education, stricter policies, additional legislation. We can do it. We can cure our human ills. Yet with all the efforts, it hasn't worked. And it's not working. Just look around. It's not working. Humanity's answer to the problems of our world fail because the problem is spiritual. It's a sin issue. And that problem isn't just out there with everybody else. It's right here within each and every one of us. We're all part of the problem. And it could be some of us don't want to hear that or acknowledge that because we're not sure there's a solution to it all. And yet Jesus came and said, there is a solution. He said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We're stuck but if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Translation, Jesus says, I'm the solution to the problems of the world. I am the redeemer through whom forgiveness of sin is possible for everyone and anyone. 
And forgiveness always comes at a cost. It always requires a sacrifice. The ancient Israelites knew that. I'm not sure we do. You know, every now and then when I'm talking to someone about faith, about Christianity, uh, discussing maybe Jesus' life, uh, his crucifixion, his death, the resurrection, all of that, uh, inevitably someone will ask me, well, why did Jesus have to go through all that? You know, the beating, the death, all of the crucifixion. Why did he have to do all that? If God is all-powerful, if God is all-loving, and God is all-gracious, why couldn't he just forgive us? That's a really good question. And uh, I thought a lot about it, and I think the answer comes down to this, that in life, there is no such thing as just forgiving. Do you know what I mean? Think of it this way. Let's say you borrow my car and wreck it. You're okay, the car's not. It's total. It's a total mess. A couple of things can happen. I can make you pay by having you buy me a new car, right? Or I can forgive you and just take whatever money insurance gives me and buy a new car and, you know, incur the cost myself. Or I can go without a car and suffer the transportational repercussions and inconvenience of that. All those are legitimate options. All those options come at a cost. Either you pay or I pay. Or let's say, uh, you know, imagine someone slanders you, just trashes your reputation for whatever reason. What are your options? Well, you can run to everyone who, who heard the false statements about you and explain to them what a filthy, rotten, stinking liar so-and-so is, you know, making him pay by ruining his reputation in an attempt to get yours back. Or you can forgive the person and choose not to do that, not to act out in kind, in which case you sacrifice your reputation because it remains marred and it'll take a lot of time for it to, be reco- or to recover. And again... Either you pay or you make the other person pay. See, that's the deal with forgiveness, you see. It always comes at a cost, always. Cost to someone. And if that's true in life, economically, psychologically, relationally, why wouldn't it be true spiritually? Scripture teaches that that God is just and he is good and he's loving, he's gracious, and he wants to forgive us our sin and our rebellion, but he can't do so without a cost to someone, without someone making a sacrifice. Either we pay or he pays. Here's the good news. God chose to absorb the cost himself. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he said that he had to suffer and that he would give his life as a ransom for many. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul expresses it this way, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. I.e., in Jesus, deity comes, graciously incurs the cost for us, pays our debt, forgives our sin, and sets us free. Sets us free. Mahatma Gandhi, leader of Indian nationalism, used to talk a lot about freedom. He talked about how Eastern and Western religions agree that as human beings, we really aren't free at all. We're all slaves to selfishness and ego, he said. Uh, And Gandhi was an admirer of Jesus. In fact, he felt that Christianity could potentially help people because with Jesus, you have a way to be freed from your selfishness. In an article he wrote entitled, What Jesus Means to Me, Gandhi put it this way. He wrote, Jesus is one of the greatest teachers humanity has ever had. He was the highest example of one who wished to give everything, asking nothing in return, not caring what creed might happen to be professed by the recipient. Basically, Gandhi said, 
follow Jesus' teaching as best you can, follow his high example, and you can possibly be free. And at first, that sounds reasonably good to me, but the more I think about it, no, it doesn't. With all due respect to Gandhi, that doesn't really work for me. I mean, does that work for you? Here we have Jesus. He comes, he lives a perfectly good, pure life. No selfishness, no hate, no greed, no egocentricity. He's never driven by the need for approval, power, or security. He was truly free from all of those things. And when I see him loving people, even his enemies, serving strangers, sacrificing, forgiving everyone and anyone uh, who's willing to accept it, and then you tell me the only way for me to be free is to live up to that high example? That's discouraging to me. That is totally debilitating because I'm just not that good of a person. I never will be. If Jesus is just a high example to follow, I'm in trouble. So are you. That doesn't help us. It doesn't help me. It just makes me feel worse about myself. And don't get me wrong, I could use a good example, but um, what I really need is a savior. What I need is a rescuer, a redeemer, whose sacrifice graciously pays my ransom and whose resurrection to life guarantees my forgiveness and life eternal. Speaking of resurrection, since it's Easter, I think it's important we put that event in its first century context as well because sometimes we modern people, we look back in history and review ancient, uh, ancient men and women as just being superstitious and gullible, you know, with a belief in God and the supernatural. Of course, they'd eagerly accept any, any miraculous claim that would come their way, including Jesus' resurrection, but that's just not the case. That's not true. That is not historically accurate. In first century Israel, Jewish people were divided on matters of the afterlife. Some believed in it, many did not. Those who accepted the idea of some kind of existence after death believed that at the very end of time, somewhere way out there in the way out future, you know, far away future, then there would be this collective resurrection of all righteous people. And God would make things new and bring about shalom, peace. Uh, But no one, no one believed in an individual resurrection. No one. N.T. Wright, in his book, points out that if you understand first century Judaism, then you would know that Jewish people never imagined that resurrection could or would happen to one person in the middle of time. The, the idea was absolutely unthinkable. It was on nobody's radar. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but both before Jesus and after Jesus, uh, there, were, there were probably a couple dozen individuals who came claiming to be the Messiah, the Redeemer. None of them ever claimed to be God in the flesh. No miracles were attested to them, and all of them were killed by the Romans, executed. And not one of those messianic figures had a group of followers stick together after the executions, and no one ever claimed their leader was raised from the dead. Why? Because it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And no one would, would, would have believed them if followers, their followers tried to hoax the idea. The idea to, to do so would never even occur to them because they didn't believe in such a thing either. Nobody did. I realize some people today struggle with the idea of a miraculous resurrection due to a scientific, material, scientific materialistic worldview, but first century Jewish people had equally strong reasons not to believe in it, holding to a worldview that was every bit as much against such a thing. Jesus' resurrection came as a complete surprise to everybody. Everybody. Can we prove it? No. But history tells us he was crucified. 
He was buried. Three days later, the tomb was empty. His body gone, never recovered. And the weeks Days that followed, hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses, men and women alike, claimed to have seen him, interacted with him. They all said Jesus was risen. He was alive. And all those people would never have said that or believed it unless they had a very good and compelling reason to do so. And on top of that, the majority of those people, including the disciples, were all killed. They were all murdered because they would not deny the risen Christ. Pinchus Lepide, Lepide um, was a very well-known, respected Orthodox Jewish historian uh, from Bar Elan University in Tel Aviv. And in his book, he wrote, The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. He assesses the historical situation this way. He says, if Jesus' defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception, without a fundamental faith experience then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. In a purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils for all those who seek a rational explanation of the worldwide consequences of that Easter faith. Lapide was saying, it is historically, this is an Orthodox Jewish historian, he said it is historically undeniable that something big, something significant, something electrifying, something empowering happened to those men and women in first century Palestine that changed them overnight, transformed them from a group of depressed, de uh, defeated followers to an unstoppable force for Jesus in the world. So what was it? What was it? It was the res resurrection of the Redeemer in whom we find forgiveness and freedom. See, that's, that's what happens when you encounter Jesus. That's what happens when you accept his offer of redemption, when you experience his forgiveness. It changes the course of your life. It changes you. That's what happened to all those people when they ran into Jesus after the resurrection. That's what happened. They were changed. They all were. Take Peter, for example. I mean, we know Peter was, a highly, uh, was not a highly educated guy. I mean, he was just an average, hardworking, blue-collar fisherman who, during his three years hanging out with Jesus, often demonstrated his own sinful, self-centered uh, brokenness. At times, Peter was really arrogant. At times, he was impetuous. At times, he was judgmental, bigoted, even violent. And sometimes Peter seemed to have a rather inflated opinion of his own goodness and his own abilities. If you remember, just, before, uh, just, just hours before the crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples that where he was about to go, they couldn't follow him. And Peter immediately reacts to that, and he says, why can't I? I'll, 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 I can follow you. I will lay down my life for you. I'll never deny you. And yet shortly after that bold proclamation, when Jesus was arrested, the religious authorities accused Peter of being one of his disciples, and three times, three times Peter adamantly denied it. In fearful failure, he, he betrayed Jesus to save his own skin. Eventually, Peter goes back to fishing, but one day, following the resurrection, Jesus intentionally approaches Peter on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? I mean, really, do you love me, Peter? Do you really love me? And three times Peter responds, he responds, yes, Lord, I love you. I do, I really love you. I do, Lord, I love you. To which Jesus then says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter was forgiven. And from that point on, his life was never the same. The purpose of his life changed. The course of his life was completely altered. No, 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 no more shame, no more guilt. He was forgiven. He was free of his past. 
He was free to go forward and lead the church in impacting the world. And what, what Peter's story tells me is that no matter your past, no matter what you've done in life or what you have failed to do, what I've done or what I've failed to do, Jesus isn't interested in deleting your past or deleting your story. He just wants to redeem them. He just wants to redeem you. He just wants to forgive us and free us to live into the future with a greater sense of meaning and purpose. No more shame, no more guilt, no more fear. What Jesus did for Peter is exactly what he offers to do for us. You know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I have really no religious background uh, to speak of. Although I wasn't like a total pagan. I mean, I, I believe God was out there somewhere. You know, I figured God was out there, but I paid him no attention because based on some of the stuff that I had heard about God, he wasn't much fun. You know, he's kind of a cosmic killjoy with all these rules. And, uh, and religion was nothing more than a long list of do's and don'ts and wills and won'ts. And I don't want, want all that legalistic restriction in my life. I didn't need all that. Plus, in my opinion, to be brutally honest about it, Christians were weak. They're wimps. They're a bunch of phonies. That wasn't me. And I didn't want those people around me. I didn't need them around me. I didn't need God. At that point in my life, man, I, from my perspective, I really was the center of my universe. And I was determined to do my own thing, my own way, and I didn't give a rip what anybody said, whether it was God or Jesus or whoever. I didn't care. And that sinful, self-centered, rebellious attitude eventually led me to some pretty bad decisions and unhealthy behaviors. Illegal ones, even criminal. I'm not proud of that, but it's true. I did things I wish I never did. I saw things I wish I never saw. I said things I wish I had never said. And looking back now, I realized that more than anything else, it was my arrogant selfishness that was destroying me from the inside out. It was killing me. And it wasn't until I hit a personal low, you know, low point in life that I, I, I looked around me and I thought, what, what am I doing? I saw no, no real direction, no meaning or purpose to my life. And at that point, I, I entertained the possibility, just the possibility, that there may be more to this existence than just living, working, struggling, paying taxes, and dying. Maybe there's a little more to it. And for the first time, I genuinely acknowledged that I was seriously messed up. I was lost, sinful, if you will, going nowhere fast, and I needed some help. I needed somebody to rescue me. Maybe I needed Jesus, maybe. And when I finally listened to someone, when I finally learned that Jesus' message was and is not about trying to be a good, better, more impressive person. It's not about earning your way. It's not about moral performance. It's all about the good news of God's grace, grace that redeems, grace that forgives, and grace that frees us to, to truly live. When I learned the truth, I embraced it. I embraced him and became a believer in Jesus. And uh, it changed my life. You know, forgiveness is never forced on you. You got to accept it. And I did. You know, at some point or another, we all come to defining moments in life, moments of clarity, moments of decision. 
And I don't know, you know, maybe today's one of them. I mean, what about you? What do you say about all this? What do you think about all this? What do you believe about all this? I mean, why are you even here tonight? I think that's a fair question to ask. You know, why are you really here? Seriously. Are you here investigating the, you know, the claims of Christianity, what the deal's all about? Or are you here because someone just made you come? They kind of drug you here? Are you here out of a sense of duty, fulfilling what is to you nothing more than a religious holiday obligation? Let's get it over with and get home. Or are you here because of what Jesus has done for you? And it has changed your life, the way you view life, the way you live life. And so you come to worship God and to thank him for his grace and publicly acknowledge and rejoice in forgiveness. I mean, which is it? Which is it? Trust me when I tell you, stubborn arrogance before God will get you nothing but trouble. Take it from me. But humility before God will get you more than you could ever ask or imagine. Life. And there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. We are all sinfully self-centered and broken, equally in need of help, rescue, forgiveness, and freedom. And all of that has been made available to you. Embrace it. Believe it. Celebrate it. For in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that uh, in this moment that you would meet each of us wherever we are in our spiritual journey. Even those who perhaps are here and didn't want to come, I, I pray that you would speak to them. We all recognize the brokenness of the world. We see the evil around us, the violence, the hate. We see it all. We see some of it even in our lives. The bigotry, the, the deceit, the pride. We see it all. We're all in equal need of forgiveness. We need it. And tonight we acknowledge that you don't, you don't want to delete our past. The past is, is what it is. You don't want to delete our past. You don't want to delete our story. You just want to redeem it. You want to redeem us. Forgive us and give us life. May we embrace it. May we believe it. And may we celebrate it this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me? Hey, I want to, uh, I want to thank you all for being with us uh, this evening. And, uh, you know, the deal is this. Uh, uh, forgiveness isn't forced. Forgiveness has to be received. And uh, I hope that you have received it tonight because of what Jesus has done for you. That's, he wants to redeem your story, forgive you, and give you, give you life. So uh, if, if that's your story, if you've done that tonight, make sure you take that little card to the resource center. We have a gift for you. So uh, uh, we, we hope you do that. Also, uh, we invite you back next Sunday. We've got a bunch of baptisms we're going to be doing, so it's going to be a fun, exciting service. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming many of you are going to go out and have a nice little dinner now. Enjoy it. Have a great Easter. Let me pray for you, and then we're dismissed. And now, Lord, I pray that uh, we would go uh, from this place with a great sense of joy and, and release, uh, with no fear, no guilt, none of those things, because we've been forgiven. Our story has been redeemed. And the Savior loves us. And we worship Him tonight. We offer our lives to you. May your hand of grace now rest on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. Happy Easter.